Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 34 of UAB Green and Told. Original air date, Monday, December 7th, 2020. Through this podcast, we are able to share stories from members of the UAB community. I'm Greg Berry, Assistant Director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. On this episode, we welcome Dr. Kenton Hagen, the team physician for the University of Arkansas Razorbacks. Kenton started his current position over the summer at a time COVID-19 was hitting middle America hard. And as he will share, he started his new role in villainesque fashion as someone looking to make sure things were being done right. Basically coming in as the new guy wearing the you know evil black cowboy hat as the person who has basically nothing but negative things to say and doom and gloom. And Plus, the Razorbacks team physician will discuss why politics and big budgets take a back seat when it comes to determining when and if SEC teams can play. How do we do this safely? And if there's just no way that we can do this safely or appropriately, then, you know, that's the answer. And we just don't play sports. And while football reigns supreme in the Southeastern Conference, there's a myriad of athletes from many different sports aching to compete. Each sport has its own unique challenges. And based on the risks of that sport, we had to be more and less prescriptive in terms of your absolute minimums. Dr. Kenton Hagen has the health of a major college athletics department on his shoulders. His job is a dream. The timing amid a global pandemic, not so much. For Kenton, uh, life in sports is something that he always strives for. Not hard to imagine when you realize as a kid, he did just about everything. I ran cross country a few years in high school. I was a kicker on the football team a few years in high school. I played tennis in the spring. Um, I played golf competitively, but not for the school. I did a little bit of everything in high school. Looking back, maybe I should have picked one and tried to be really good at that, but had a great time, you know, a bunch of different friend groups, a bunch of teammates kind of all over the place. And I just really enjoyed competing, doing different stuff, having a lot of friends kind of in different places. So been an athlete for a long time, I guess. Since you were so heavily involved in athletics growing up, did you always kind of have a, a dream, a goal to work in that industry? In high school, I kind of knew that my path was going to be, or what I wanted my path to be, was something in sports. Um, going into, or coming out of high school, I didn't really know what that entailed, whether that was, do you want to go be you know, a high school football coach or a high school teacher and coach of something, or do I want to try and coach in college? Um, going in, I knew I kind of wanted to do something science related um, in college as my major and whether that took me into a medical field or not you know I didn't really know at the time but kind of leaving high school I knew I wanted to do something in sports um, just not knowing exactly what that was going to be. Were you a healthy student athlete in high school? Uh, yeah I, I guess so. Um, <laughs> we tried to you know balance academics and sports and um, everything else. I have not had a major injury, luckily, through my athletic career. I mean, I had a, I guess a stress fracture in college in my foot and some other things. But yeah, I don't have the story that you hear that, you know, I tore my ACL and after the doctor took care of me, I knew I wanted to do that. Um, it was more of, I knew I wanted to, do, wanted to do sports basically in high school, definitely coming out of high school. And it was more of a, what path is that going to look like? And once I got to college and was able to keep my grades up and all that kind of stuff and medical school became a possibility. I kind of knew at that point, uh, trying not to jump ahead too far, but 
kind of knew once uh, the medical school thing was what I wanted to do, sports medicine was kind of the path I wanted to take. Why UAV? In college, kind of applying to medical school, you, at least I was, I was, I don't know, I guess I had good enough grades, but I certainly wasn't a rock star by comparison to some of my classmates and some of the people that come into UAB and other medical schools. So I had to apply everywhere and actually applied to medical school two years in a row. Um, my first year, uh, I got into a DO school, um, but wasn't thrilled with that path and actually had a year of eligibility left in cross country. So I stayed an extra year at Huntingdon to run cross country and um, stay with my teammates and kind of have a victory lap, so to say. That's <laughs> what we joke about, but was blessed to you know have that opportunity to be able to do that. And ultimately reapplied to medical school, re-interviewed at UAB and um, UAB was where I wanted to go kind of from day one. And um, really the stars aligned to, there's no reason to go anywhere but UAB. And kind of my second time around, I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And it was a extremely easy choice. How did the curriculum and all the, the coursework that you did at UAB help set you up for your future endeavors, the successes that you've attained? One thing that I liked and when you're in residency and you know just friends you have who kind of going through medical school you kind of compare and contrast you know how your school does does things versus um, others and i like to think when i was in medical school back however many years ago that was um, the organ-based systems i thought were very unique at the time i really enjoyed that model and then the one thing that i tell everyone is my third and fourth years of medical school in huntsville um, were unbelievable. I would never go back and repeat the first two years of medical school, but you probably could talk me into uh, going back to Huntsville and being a third and fourth year medical student again. That was the kind of freedom and the opportunities we had in Huntsville were to me unmatched by anyone that I've talked to in residency or fellowship or others, you know, folks who are kind of were in the same path as me and the opportunities we had at that campus and the amount of caring and energy that the administration in Huntsville put into us being successful. And I haven't talked to anyone who had kind of that same, that same energy matched into the students that the folks in Huntsville um, did for us. After you got out in the real world, you started just jumping in feet first. Um, you worked with the Philadelphia Flyers, University of Pennsylvania, the Penn Relays. What were those experiences like as you continued to mold Dr. Hagen's career? Having those opportunities, undoubtedly, I wouldn't be where I am today without those um, opportunities. Penn is a place where there's a ton of tradition, there's a ton of history. They still play Division One sports, so they still play some of the you know big schools that you typically think of in terms of athletics, or at least college athletics, you know, Penn State, Ohio State, and that kind of stuff. So it's really a unique combination of a hyper academic place, but also having some kind of real world, I guess, uh, kind of college sports um, atmosphere that some of the other really academic places like an Emory wouldn't have. Working with the Flyers, um, a lot of people ask about professional sports. What's it, what is it like? Um, different sports really have really different cultures and professional hockey has a awesome culture. They are extremely welcoming. They want 
people there to help them out. They respect your opinion. You know, they really want you there. I don't want to talk bad about other cultures, but some other cultures, you're just another cog in the wheel. But I have nothing but awesome things to say about the Flyers and really hockey culture in general. Um, to any aspiring sports medicine people who might be out there, if you have the chance to work with a professional hockey team, 100% latch onto that and try not to let go. <laughs> So you moved on from those experiences and you wind up this year at the University of Arkansas. Why did you make that move and why was it so important to just progress that in your career? Right, right. Yeah, kind of going back to some of your or one of your earlier questions, you know, what when did you know you want to do sports medicine? And I kind of knew, you know, you're going through medical school, you're going through residency. I know I want to do sports medicine. One of the decisions is, do I want to do, you know, be a surgeon or not? I decided, no, I don't want to be a surgeon. I want to go down the non-op route. And I also knew that kind of after my experiences at Penn and growing up in the South, that my ideal job would be working in college athletics and hopefully kind of big time college athletics, you know, whatever that mean, might mean to you. But to me, that meant, you know, kind of an SEC school or something equivalent. And I mean, honestly, I was right place at the right time and there's not a whole lot else around it. I mean, I like to think, you know, I worked hard and had a decent resume and whatnot. I mean, some of that you have to have to, I guess, get the interview and whatnot, but um, I was really the right place at the right time and unbelievably lucky to have the opportunity that I've had now, especially as 100% the most junior member, at least in terms of uh, <laughs> length of career of any of the SEC physicians, particularly the physicians who are on this COVID committee that I'm on with the SEC. But a lot of it, kind of going back to the things I said about the Flyers, when people ask about sports medicine careers, especially working at kind of more high profile institutions or high profile sports, it's it's really right place at the right time or uh, having a really good friend in some powerful place, which I do not have the latter, but I definitely was able to take advantage of the former. Um, it's all about right place, right time and having the skills to accomplish the job they're looking for. You joined the University of Arkansas athletic program in the midst, in the middle of COVID-19. Was that difficult making that transition during this time? Right, yeah, yeah. We had a uh, an extremely busy summer. We had our, our first child in April during the uh, probably absolute peak of COVID in Philadelphia. Congratulations. And a few months later, moved to uh, Arkansas as the peak was starting kind of in the community in Arkansas. We thought we might be moving away from it, but we moved right into it. And the biggest challenge in Arkansas um, coming in as the new guy is basically coming in as the new guy wearing the you know evil black cowboy hat as the person who has basically nothing but negative things to say and doom and gloom. And you need to change all these things that you want to do and you expect to do as a normal, you know, normal everyday thing with your athletic uh, team. And that's probably was the biggest challenge is kind of not having that rapport with, you know, coaches and administrators. I mean, the administrators are great. You know, they're on board. They know that, you know, we need to do these things. We know if we don't do these things to protect ourselves with COVID and just everything that's gone into it, you know, we're not going to have sports. But coaches and student athletes not having those relationships and kind of coming in and just dumping all this big, heavy stuff on them. That took a little while to kind of build up rapport with um, everyone. But now we're here, we're doing uh, fairly successful with it. We've been doing, I mean, really well in terms of our caseload and everything. You know, ideally we'd have zero, but that's a probably unreasonable expectation. Um, but luckily we've been, we've been doing really well. And a lot of that has to do with 
the culture and the buy-in that everyone has had at the university in terms of this is a big deal, we want to play sports, we need to do these things. And I can't applaud them enough um, in terms of listening to all the bad news and everything that I have to tell them and kind of digesting it and putting in, you know, pragmatic, actionable things that we can do to make things safe for the student athletes. So how do you have the conversations with the student athletes about the COVID concerns? Early on, um, if we think back to late summer, I guess it was probably July, early August, when we, you know, conferences and sports were kind of postponing seasons. And there's a lot of stuff about, you know, the some of the conferences, the athletes released, you know, documents saying, you know, we want this X, Y, Z. A lot of it was really just having frank conversations about just like we do with any other patient with, you know, what are your concerns? What are your questions? You know, what are you most concerned about? And luckily the athletes, you know, were able to communicate. They're able to express, you know, what they were worried about. You know, early on it was, you know, really no one knew a whole lot about any of it. You know, it was, if I get COVID, is everyone going to have myocarditis? Is everyone going to, you know, have some complication from it? Or is this, you know, not to, be light about it. Is this just kind of like the common cold or, you know, is this kind of a nothing for me? But a lot of it was really just communication. And we had, who knows, dozens, hundreds of Zoom meetings. I mean, I've met with every single team, every single coach. Um, we had one Zoom with, I don't know, all 550 student athletes on it. So a lot of it was um, a lot of Zoom and a lot of communication and saying no question is dumb, no question is too small. And having everyone understand that, you know, this is a fluid situation. So what I tell you on August 1st, you know, could be completely different August 2nd, you know, as more information comes out. And the kids, at least at the University of Arkansas with my experience here and a little bit with the SEC as a whole, the kids, 99% of them, they just wanted to play their sport. And like, Doc, how can we do this safely? And if you say there's no way we can do it safely, then We'll just have to accept that. But really from day one, the student athletes, by and large, I mean, literally 99% of them were, we want to play our sport. How can we do it? And that was a much easier starting point than something that might have been more contentious. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you serve as the junior member on the SEC COVID-19 <laughs> Medical Task Force. Right. What's that like and what does that task force do? They started it around the time that kind of March Madness and all the basketball stuff was canceled. They kind of realized that, as everyone did, that, all right, kind of this two-week shutdown isn't just going to magically make this go away. This is going to be with us for some time. So the task force started in April. They met about weekly um, up until June. When I joined the practice in June um, and joined the university at that time, I stepped in as the one who was probably a little bit more equipped compared to our surgical colleagues to deal with the more medical issue um, or infectious disease issue. And we've met anywhere from two times a week to five times a week. And similar to what the conversation with the student, student athletes were, the conference has been unbelievable with us. And basically the question wasn't, can we play sports? It was, how can we play sports? And if we can't is an answer, then, you know, that's one answer and, or that's the answer we have to go with. But from day one, it was, how can we play sports and how can we get this done? There wasn't contention, there wasn't pressure, there wasn't, you know, of course there's always politics and 
money and whatever, but none of that was on our plate. It was, how do we do this safely? And if there's just no way that we can do this safely or appropriately, then, you know, that's the answer. And we just don't play sports. Um, and I really have to give kudos to the conference for that, that there's really no contention. There's no pressure on us. It was 100%. And it's been that way from at least day one for me, which was early June of how can we do this? With the task force, I mean, we talked about that really the question was how do we play sports? And the analogy I like to give is if you think about the Tom Hanks Apollo 13 movie, it was kind of like the scene where they dump all this stuff out on the table and they say, you know, they have all this equipment up there. How do we get them back home alive? And really early on, it was kind of that. It was, we have a little bit of science here, a little bit of science there, you know, how do we put all of these things together to try and make kind of elite athletics work? And we don't have the billions of dollars that, that the NFL does, but we have these things and how can we do it safely? And when people ask kind of what it's been like, I, if you've seen Apollo 13, that's about the uh, best analogy I can give you. Um, and so far, knock on wood, we've been fairly successful at it, or at least about as successful as we think we could have, but we're always getting better, so. We've had a lot of games, football games, volleyball contests, whatever, canceled or postponed due to the virus. Mm -hmm. What goes into the task force determining, okay, it's not safe for this particular team, so we have to delay that game? With that, that's something that we struggled with a lot, especially early on with how prescriptive do we need to be? Um, I think we all got a lot better at um, pseudo being lawyers and contract writing. And when you make a document, you know, what does that look like? You don't want to be too restrictive, um, but you also need to have, you know, a solid set of rules. And with each sport, it presents its own unique challenges. Um, so for example, cross country, you just need five runners to, you know, cross the line to score as a team. So cross country, there's a ton of gray area. Do we say, oh, sorry, you've, your top eight people are out, but you still can compete. So there's a lot of gray area for something like cross country where you really just need five people to cross the line versus football where we have to be really pretty prescriptive in terms of you need at least 53 scholarship athletes, you need at least so many offensive linemen, you need so many quarterbacks, you know, X, Y, Z, because the goal for football with it already being our most dangerous sport, at least in terms of orthopedic injuries and just kind of injuries in general, you don't want to set up a team where you're forcing them to say, you got to go with people that either aren't ready to play or you just don't have the numbers. You know, you don't want to, you know, just put someone who's never played quarterback out there and really get them hurt. Um, so each sport has its own unique challenges. And based on the risks of that sport, we had to be more and less prescriptive in terms of your absolute minimums. Um, another thing, especially early on, and even one of the concerns that's kind of creeping up now is if we don't have the supplies or the logistics to do the testing that's required, you know, that means we can't play sports. You know, if we can't do our PCR tests that we feel are necessary to be safe to do this, and it's just not a possibility, then we can't play. And kind of exploring every single avenue where things could go wrong, we got really good at that. And I don't know if we're excellent at it yet, but every, it seems like every week we figure out something else where this could all fall apart and we do our best to address it. Sheer numbers would indicate that football is the most challenging during these times to really coordinate around. Is that the case? Football is hard in terms of the sheer numbers, um, but football helped us out in that we were able to kind of mandate early on that 
all right, we're only going to play on Saturdays. You know, you, sometimes you have the Thursday night game for ESPN or you play some random night of the week. I mean, the SEC typically only plays on Thursdays and Saturdays, but we basically said pretty early on that we're only playing on Saturdays. And that allowed us to make a very standardized testing schedule. And early on, we recognized that when we, when we, as we weighed the pros and cons of different testing mechanisms that we settled on the PCR tests um, kind of early on, that was the gold standard when we settled on we're only going to use PCR and we had some problems with the antigen testing. So we stuck with PCR and say, all right, well, we probably can't PCR test every day. I mean, even the professional organizations can't afford to do that. So how do we balance, you know, the math and the statistics and be as safe as possible and all that type of stuff. So football helped out a lot in that we kind of forced them into only playing on Saturdays. Actually, more of the challenges came with um, soccer and volleyball and that soccer and volleyball played, while they don't have the sheer numbers of student athletes and coaches and support staff, they play in the past almost every day of the week and kind of forcing them into soccer. They only played on Saturdays. There's a few Friday night games or Sunday games, but kind of forcing them from playing two or three times a week on kind of almost any day of the, any day of the week to kind of a cookie cutter schedule and the same for volleyball. Um, that actually posed the biggest challenge is trying to get a standardized test um, testing schedule for the sports. And that's something that we're trying to wrestle with now, actually, with winter and spring sports where basketball, you know, horse plays all the time and baseball and softball. And it's really the scheduling of the games is the bigger hurdle compared to the um, anything else. With uh, possible vaccines on the horizon and those being administered, where do you see COVID going in college athletics in the short term and potentially long term? I really don't think much is going to change um, for our winter and spring sports. Um, if anything, I suspect, and I have some anxiety about they're actually going to be even more challenging with our winter and spring sports as we're moving from sports that are essentially all outside, at least with volley or um, with soccer and football, to our indoor sports, you know, basketball, um, indoor track, those type of things. And what the risk of that is going to be. I mean, we don't know yet, um, but we are all kind of have our fingers crossed. We started basketball this week, you know, what that's going to look like. We haven't had any cases transmitted from team to team in an outdoor sport, but we don't know what that's going to look like for an indoor sport. So that's kind of where we are right now, um, kind of in the short term. And really even the short and medium, medium term, I think winter and spring athletics are going to be very similar to the fall. We're going to reduce crowd sizes. Um, we have all these testing cadences. If there's a positive test, you know, we kind of have our protocols in place. I'm semi-confident that our next academic year, we will be more normal. I don't know if it will be completely normal, but I like to think there's a greater than 50% chance we will, 2021 football, will be back to, uh, you know, 2019 football in terms of normality. Um, I can't say that for sure, but I think hopefully greater than 50% chance that that happens. Moving back to your role as team physician for University of Arkansas Razorback Athletics. How many students, you mentioned 550 that you're in charge of? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's, it's got to be daunting. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot. Um, luckily, we have an unbelievable training staff. I mean, our athletic trainers are exceptional. They know how to screen things, they know how to take care of a lot of stuff. We have, in addition to me, we have a nurse practitioner on campus who helps with a lot of stuff as well. So there are several filters to keep, you know, 550 phone calls to me from happening per day. 
it can be busy. <laughs> there are always, you know, texts and emails and phone calls that are kind of constant throughout the day. Um, so it's busy, but we do our best um, for them. And luckily we have an exceptional, really network of specialists in anything under the sun here in Northwest Arkansas that we can lean on. With COVID, obviously myocarditis, kind of cardiology concerns have been a big thing. We worked extremely closely with our uh, sports cardiologist that um, is here in the community and with echocardiograms and you know everything that kind of goes into some of these myocarditis screens if we have concerns. Um, luckily, we have an extremely well-connected network. They're all dedicated to kind of keeping uh, the Razorback athletic or athletes on the field. When you're the, luckily when you're the only game in town, everyone's kind of all in on making sure the Razorbacks are as healthy as they can be. So that, that makes it uh, a little bit easier compared to some communities like Philadelphia, where there's a whole lot of stuff going on in, in Philly. So Penn Athletics isn't always, you know, number one in everyone's mind. With your experience, which sport is the hardest to keep the athletes on the field or on the court? A lot of it kind of somewhat goes back to some of the hockey mindset that I talked about or the hockey culture. Every sport is extremely unique. I would say football players, they are notoriously the ones that are most banged up and have, you know, the most injuries. But by and large, most of them want to be on the field. I would say football is football's probably probably the hardest um, to keep athletes on the field just because of the nature of the sport. But you do run into... Other sports, particularly like track and field or soccer, some of the more where your sport is just running, um, they feel a little bit off. Some of them are a little hesitant to get back out there. You know, they always want to be 100%. So some of it depends on kind of the mindset of the athlete versus, you know, in football, you know, some of those guys have pretty big injuries and you almost have to protect them from themselves. So it's a complicated question, but it really depends kind of on the culture of the sport and the mindset of the athlete. You're really kind of dealing with Kind of apples and oranges a little bit there. That's Dr. Kenton Hagen. Dr. Hagen earned his MD from the UAB School of Medicine in 2015. He is currently the team physician for the University of Arkansas and a member of the SEC COVID-19 Medical Task Force. While he's now working with the Razorbacks, he definitely knows what it means to be a blazer. Being a blazer to me means you have been trained and you carry kind of the reputation that UAB has, which to me is exceptional. And you're kind of responsible to carry that, you know, expertise, that excellence, wherever you go. Kind of coming from UAB, it really made me proud, especially when I was in residency and fellowship and everything in Philly that was like, hey, I'm just as smart and just as well-trained as, you know, any of you people who have come from these I don't know if they're a bigger name, but you know, Harvard and Yale and all that kind of stuff that people kind of drool over sometimes. Um, and to me, being a Blazer means that, you know, you have the excellence and reputation of any of those more name brands that people typically think about, and you're just as good as any of them. And I think that's something you can be proud of and kind of lean back on knowing that you have just as good training as anyone else in the world. You can be among the first to hear new episodes of our podcast. Just subscribe to it on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, or listen in online at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Do you know somebody who has a story to share? Email me at greenandtold at uab.edu. And don't forget to stay up to date with UAB alumni on social media. We can be found at UAB alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go Blazers. <laughs>